listening to this thing we call our a podcast about how I don't want to give in to an ideology that I fundamentally disagree with that doesn't value artistic labor, because I can't think of anything more important. There aren't very many spaces like art where you can talk about anything and everything, and it actually sets up a kind of external to yourself conversation with others, you know? Just like the actual thing that art is blows my mind, and I love it. And when that really happens, it's just like the most incredible thing ever. And I just, I can't think of a more worthwhile way to spend my time. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017. And today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 14th of December, 2022 with Catriona Beals. Catriona Beals is an internationally exhibited artist whose work responds to the social implications of new technologies, mental health, and digital culture. Catriona's interdisciplinary project, Are We All Addicts Now?, supported by the Wellcome Trust and Arts Council England, was shown at Further Field 2017. Recent work includes new commissions for the Victoria and Albert Museum and Science Gallery London, both in 2018, Impact Netherlands, and the participatory green screen installation at Autograph, both 2020. Recent exhibitions include the group shows at Camberwell Space, London, Estacion Terenta, Bogota, Our Space, Seoul, and the Ludwig Museum in Budapest, all 2022. Catriona has an MA from Chelsea College of Art supported by a Stanley Picker bursary and an artist profile on rhizome.org. In 2022, she undertook an experimental online residency with Anna Bunting Branch at the National Health Service's only center treating gaming disorders, supported by an Arts Council England project grant. She is one of the three founding members of Artists Union England. I met Catriona through the London Creative Network program, and I spoke with her over Zoom while we were both in our homes. The audio quality for the season is varied, so remember that the transcripts for all these conversations are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. Our conversation was an hour and 20 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety today, you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you 11 minutes in. Starting to speak like publicly about your own work or with um, Artist Union England stuff, or when did that kind of really ramp up you needing to speak to people? Good question. So, um potted history so I finished my BA I did my BA in Liverpool in 2005 and I did some work in like I worked for a disability arts organization and then I worked for like a cultural network and I was doing like arts admin type stuff and then I did some training with a thing that doesn't exist anymore to do artist workshops in schools it was a program called creative partnerships when they were really trying to prioritize creativity in the curriculum do you remember that (laughs) way back in the midst of time under a previous uh, political ideology um anyway and actually that was when I started doing more stuff in front of people um, rather than behind a desk type stuff I mean I'd always sort of had a studio-based practice but um it had kind of you know limped along alongside the sort of arts admin stuff and then I went full-time self-employed um in 2009 off the back of doing a lot of artist educator type stuff I don't actually like that phrase very much but um yeah so it was I was sort of uh in between my BA and my MA that I started doing more sort of 
and then I we moved to London and I did an MA, well, a postgrad diploma in an MA. And then I was also doing like this artist workshop leader project at Tate. Every week I was doing like three or four workshops in the gallery with people. So it just sort of broke the back of that a little bit, I think, just being like, hi, you don't know me. We're going to talk about art, make something maybe. I don't know, you know, just, I don't know. It just sort of, it broke the fear in me, I think, of being rejected by people publicly or I don't know. Yeah. And then the artist union stuff sort of, well, it kicked off behind the scenes in 2012. Um, there was three of us, um, Angela Kennedy and Sally Scheinman, and we were just sort of totally fed up. <laughs> on a long train journey and then we did two years of kind of unpaid work behind the scenes trying to work out how you actually do that how do you actually start a trade union what does that actually do what does it look like and then it launched we had an exec and that was it we had like 10 people um in 2014 but we had a constitution and we'd made links with other artist union groups like scottish artist union and precarious workers brigade and yeah and then that also I've sort of consistently spoken about that since we launched that um in different contexts um and spoken about artist pay and labor and and things like that um yeah that I'm no longer on the executive of the um AUE um and it is still primarily run by volunteers so um yeah can you tell me more about what AUE is and maybe some of the um, stories that come along with trying to figure out how to set up a trade union and all of the different kinds of people you talk to and the research that you've done? Yeah, just tell me more about it. Yeah, so basically AUE is Artists Union England, which is a trade union that represents artists in England. And it's not like... Great Britain or anything because there is pre-existing a Scottish artist union so obviously the point of a trade union is to represent a group of workers and be like a vehicle for like collective bargaining and changing working conditions and um, basically in order to represent people you have to delineate who you're representing so that can be it's partly geography but it's also like the sort of theoretical territory like what is the labor that you're representing? So it's for a, a visual and applied artist, an artist with socially engaged practice. We have over the years had a bit of interest at different points from artists in Wales, but we haven't kind of, that's not actually ever coalesced into something actually forming. I think when people <laughs> realize the work that it can take, you know, that can be off putting and it's ongoing as well. Um, so, I mean, setting up the trade union was like very eye-opening experience. Uh, and also, to be honest, at points, frankly, odd. Because <laughs> it was like, the history of the trade union movement is in one level incredible. So a lot of the kind of working rights that we take for granted today, like basic health and safety and like a five-day working week and things like that are a result of the trade union movement. And so you can see like the incredible impact that collective negotiation by workers has had 
on the way our society functions and how effective that can be. Also, equally, it's been a movement that's been dominated by white men. It hasn't done a good job at representing minority groups or a global majority. And um, yeah, we really wanted to sort of be a different type of trade union in the sense, like, because there was an artist union in the 70s, Gustav Metzger and people like that were involved with that. And we made some relationships with them. I mean, he's passed away now, but he came to our, we had a launch at the House of Lords or was it House of Commons? I can't remember. Um, there was a launch event. I think it was 2016. We had like a launch event there and he came to that. And it was just, we had some other members of the original artist union come, which is wonderful. But they, that attempt at organizing a union actually didn't, it didn't stand the test of time because they didn't do some and this isn't a criticism them it's just they decided not to kind of formally um constitute some of the elements that you need to actually really form a trade union so there's all kinds of kind of there's something called a certification that you need which is from a, a made-up office called the certification office which margaret thatcher basically set up to make it more difficult to form a trade union so you have to kind of buy essentially a certificate. It's like, I think it's like back in the, when we did it, it was 3000 pounds, but you have to raise that somehow. So it's like these hoops you have to jump through to like get off the ground. And um, we managed to do it, um, which I still think is one of the most amazing achievements. I can't, I just full credit to people who are still involved with the union, like Teresa Eason and, you know, people who are like really doing a nitty gritty organizing um, through through it because it's a lot. It's a lot of work. But what we've been able to do as a result is really, I think, amazing. And I have earned thousands more pounds on a personal level because I've repeatedly every time I get offered a contract, I renegotiate it using the artist union rates of pay. And every time I get offered more money. So I think it's a tool. It's a collective tool. And it's you use it if you're part of it and you use it, it has power. Um, but it you needs it needs people to join for it to be powerful. And I think when we first set up, we had a lot of criticism. We had criticism from the Arts Council. I had some frankly bizarre meetings I met with, like the head of art visual arts at arts council he just flat out told me that artists didn't need that and I was like basically I had a bit of a the bit between my teeth and I was like we're not asking for your permission and we're not asking for your money we're just telling you what we're doing and like left the room <laughs> because I just got to the point where I was so fed up of people saying basically artists don't need this when it had been birthed by mostly women who had caring responsibilities who had had a succession of cuts to artist budgets because of austerity and and basically we just all felt this kind of surge of like frustration which we were trying to channel into improving our lives and each other's and um you know that I think those pressures have actually increased since we formed over the last it's nearly 10 years now you know I thought things were difficult when austerity first kicked in 
but things are getting more and more difficult. The mountain feels like it's getting bigger. And that can feel so paralyzing and exhausting and overwhelming and just make you want to just stop, make you want to give up. Why am I doing this? Why am I earning so little? And why is my expertise not valued? And you just feel like this is not sustainable. I can't do this. And basically, I want to collective things make me feel powerful because it makes me feel agency and I think if we can make things together they act as tools to intervene and um I just I'm really passionate about it really that's it that's like <laughs> join a trade union I don't even care which one it is just join a trade union um yeah and I can I just say that our trade union, it, their co-chairs are a disabled person and a black woman. So, you know, we're just like rewriting the rules here. And I just feel also like um, I just, you know, we're trying to be nimble with a lot of our growth initially came through social media. And, you know, we're just trying to but it needs people to participate in order for it to work. So I don't really have that much time for people like. I don't know what the trade union does and it like well what are you doing <laughs> I don't know it's like you know the things have to come from the members of the union in order for it to function so it's not you know a musicians union has been established for 150 years and they have like a multi-million pound uh headquarters in like oval you know the reason that they've got a lot more power and a lot more weight in their industry is because they've been fighting collectively for 150 years. So, of course, something that a few of us set up in my living room, like that's still trying to get off the ground, isn't as effective yet. But it needs people to participate in order to work. And it is a really powerful tool. So also, I mean, it's kind of interesting time as well, because the art review recently just said that unions are number three and they're like art one of the top most powerful things in art world I don't I don't really believe these things these like end of year reviews where they're like the top 100 this year of like movers and shakers in the art world anyway in art review number three is unions and it just makes me laugh actually because when we first started out talking about this which is 10 years ago people were like the trade union movement is dead it's no longer relevant how can it function for like atomized workers? You know, people don't um, have collective interests. And I think it's that's a fundamental, I mean, it's been shown to be a fundamental misnomer because, you know, actually as precarious workers, artists have got so much in common with other precarious workers who don't have contracts, who are on zero hours, who, you know, basically whose working rights have been eroded by neoliberalism and individualism and all of these isms. And actually people have realized that some of these old tools that have a legal territory have power to push back against those things. And they can be really effective. So when we first started, it was just at the same time as the Ritzy strikes were happening in the Brixton Ritzy cinema and the cinema workers were striking. And it was just interesting because it was like this sort of people were surprised. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I'm still interested to sort of think about what an art strike looks like. Um, but I think people would notice pretty quickly if 
we covered up every single piece of public sculpture in London because it was an art strike. You know, your visual territory is totally populated by art all the time and you just don't acknowledge, it's not acknowledged. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, in my lecture that I was talking about, I kind of added commentary on being present in, um, you know, Hito Stiles' duty-free art. And she kind of begins this one section, was it the Terror of Total Dasein, speaking about like what would a art strike even look like? You know, like some people have been striking the whole time. Some people have not been making something the whole time. You know, what, what does it mean to take that away and have people not necessarily notice, which is something I've been talking with my friend, Jesse Malmed, who I interviewed earlier um, about kind of the book, Tell Them I Said No where it's like the only people that people notice when they've left are the people that have gotten to a certain point in their career. Like there have been yeah. so many people who have left the art world. Um, yeah. You know, we've known so many of them like through being artists for, for this long and in different kinds yeah. of art companies. And, and that is a kind of, that's not a strike, but it's a kind of um, action, you yeah. know? Yeah, it is. I feel like we're threatening it so much. All of the time we're threatening to leave. I mean, maybe this is like a good time to, you know, okay. So I went to your artist lecture at Oxford Brooks and in it, you spoke about a number of your projects and you had this one story of, is it psychotic constant? Okay. Yeah. You're talking about organic control. That's a film. Yeah. That uses some that's part of a big kind of research project that I did um, called Are We All Addicts Now? And I was trying to articulate my own sort of disordered engagement with social media and insomnia and the sort of negative feedback loop between the two and also how compelling and kind of attractive and seductive I also find online environments. So I was trying to talk about love and hate at the same time in a way. And as part of that project, I did a kind of a bit of a deep dive into the sort of mechanics of platforms and what's really happening in terms of behavioral psychology and how that's employed within those spaces. And um, so I got a bit into B.F. Skinner, who was like the kind of father of behavioral psychology in a way. And he was very patriarchal um but he was also incredibly influential and still is in terms of the design of a lot of platforms there's a bf skinner foundation and they gave me access to their they were very liberal about it as well which surprised me but they were they gave me access to their moving image archive of his life and also their photographic archive as well and um i used some films which shows some of his research in some moving image work that I made for that project. So um, the film that you're talking about is called Organic Control and it comes, the title comes from some of his research because that's essentially what he was looking at is how to control populations and organic, right? or by organic, he meant like people and animals, but ultimately he was really talking about people, like how to kind of channel society's behavior to be better it's all, you know, all of the kind of value judgments about it and what better constitutes are very, like, it's easy to be highly critical of his research, but 
it's also important to acknowledge exactly how influential it's been and how it's still utilized. And basically, he was a person who discovered this sort of principle of variable reward. And what that means is that we can't actually negotiate a variable reward schedule. It's highly addictive in terms of our brain chemistry. And he proved that through a series of experiments with pigeons and monkeys and things like that, in which he basically set up a kind of stable reward schedule. So they had a little button. And if the pigeon or the monkey pressed the button 10 times, every 10th time there would be some food. And basically animals responded to that by only pressing the button when they were hungry. And then he, this is quite, some of this is quite um, disturbing. I find it quite disturbing, but he set up a whole suite of experiments, which basically varied this reward schedule. So he made it unstable, the relationship. So you could click three times and get food, or you could click 500 times and get food. And you never knew it wasn't consistent. And the fact that it was inconsistent meant that you have these very disturbing videos of these pigeons just constantly clicking. And even when the food comes, they're still clicking because they don't know when the next food will come. And that's sort of like scarcity model. Um, and basically they, they die. They click so much, like 15,000 clicks in a few hours or something. There's this video as well of this Macau mon monkey doing the same thing. It's just probably one of the most disturbing things ever. And I use that in that film. And basically that is the principle that is used to kind of engineer uh, addictive behavior in online spaces. It's also used within casinos. So like a slot machine, you don't know when you're gonna get the three cherries and win 10,000 pounds. It could be your next go. And so that unpredictability is what is directly linked to a causation effect in terms of addictive behavior. And um, it's, but it's also used in, in Instagram or like any other social media platform where basically if you post something on Instagram, you'll notice this, the algorithm holds back when your likes are released. So people might be liking your thing but it won't always release, you won't see people's responses in real time. So it will stagger it, sometimes it will be, and then you keep checking back. Has anyone liked my post yet? No one's liked my post, why have they not liked my post? And um, it's a way of keeping users on, on your platform. And uh, it's really, really effective. And then obviously there's this dopamine cycle attached to that. So I just find it very dystopian and also very kind of, I find it fascinating as well. Um, and also, even though I know all this stuff, I still fall for it every time as well. Yeah, that's kind of like an ongoing interest in my work in terms of like behavioral design. And in a way, that's kind of what we're doing as artists anyway, because we're trying to engage an audience and attract attention. And I also find that kind of crossover <laughs> quite uncomfortable interesting as well you know I want to make a compelling installation I want to and we're even more so now kind of 
within this attention economy as well. So fighting for space, for a prominence, for position. Um, except I just can't be bothered to do that anymore. <laughs> and I'm interested in like, I suppose I'm interested in sort of, um, you know, strategies of resistance of these things. And, and that is another reason why I'm interested in collective sort of forms although I make my own work under my own name, um, but I am interested in the kind of collective endeavors and not just in the art world, like I'm part of the residence association of my estate. And, you know, for me, it's like how I want to live my life is about creating collective structures where we can help each other out and form community. So, yeah. When, um, you know, cause at a certain point, right, you were, um one of the founding members and then you were on the board of directors and then you decided to of the artist union england and you decided to step away yeah um, um can you just talk to me about that process of deciding to step away and what that was like and how you had to negotiate that among a variety of other ways that um you were involved in other things and obviously your your own life and and your own work yeah, sure. So my hand was kind of forced in a way because I got pregnant and I wanted to have a kid. And um, I kind of um, had had a model of art, sustaining my art practice um, by, you know, delivering projects in gallery and education settings and then having time to have a studio practice alongside that. And you know, lots of people still use that model. And I think it's a very valid model, but it's one that only functions if you haven't got caring responsibilities. Because the moment you kind of throw in caring responsibilities in the mix, you don't really have free time. So the idea that I would be able to be apart from a child who I would have to pay someone else to look after, you know, my partner and I, at that point, he was also self-employed and um, you know, we did juggle childcare between us, but whenever we weren't doing childcare, we needed to be earning money. And it just, it, the space in my life for voluntary work collapsed. And so then it just, it, you know, in a way, I, I kind of didn't want to leave the AUE exec when I did, because we were just beginning, but I had to step down. And um and it forced my hand in lots of ways. In some ways, it was incredibly healthy. And in other ways, it was really, really hard. But basically, I just suddenly was like, right, I've got to go after grant funding. Because if I'm going to have any kind of practice and be a mum, I have to have income to make my work. And so, um, or I just, and I don't mean this in a diminutive way, but or I focus on being like an educator. Um, and uh, I really wanted to go after continuing to have an art practice. So, um, and I realized those things aren't always distinct. So um, forgive me, a, a studio-based practice, I should say. Yeah, so I just, because I'd done, um, I just had my kind of big, first big major um, institutional commission for fact in Liverpool, and I was pregnant and I was running into my like, self-employed mat leave which is like not really mat leave 
Um, and I was like, holy moly, what am I going to do? I'm going to apply to Wellcome Trust um, because they, they at that point, they don't do this anymore. And I think it's it's such a loss to like arts funding, but they um, used to have a, a arts funding stream and um, it was a significant amount of money compared to like what you can get off Arts Council or whatever. So at that point, the small arts award was 50,000 and the large arts award was 100,000. And because I just had this commission from FACT, which was in collaboration with a neuroscientist, I had the kind of biomedical connection there. So I just, off the back of that commission, I just, and it was all fresh. The research was there. It was difficult to write that application. I just slammed it together. And um, yeah, and then three months into my mat leave, I found out that I'd been awarded 50,000 pounds. Yes. Thank you, God. <laughs> And then so that was a game changer for me because the only reason I'm still an artist today is because of that investment from Welcome. I can say that hand on heart because that enabled that whole project, that whole Are We All Addicts Now project. And then so many things came off the back of that for me because surprise, surprise, if you invest in artist practice, they're able to make some good work and then that builds sustainability and then I also leverage some of that money to get some more money from Arts Council and just work it baby so that taught me a lot that whole experience then it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have got pregnant because it forced me to not just kind of subsidize myself but to take my practice kind of seriously for its own sake but it's that <laughs> yeah I, I you know I've had a second child and holy moly that is that has been difficult and just in terms of continuing an art practice and then obviously that also coinciding with a pandemic you know and this autumn is the first time that both my kids are in full-time education which I don't have to pay for um so you know we <laughs> we limped along and you know and frankly we only survived the pandemic because my partner got employed as a lecturer so we weren't both self-employed when the pandemic started because it wouldn't you know we would have ended up needing to leave London like a lot of other people and have to live with our family I think because it's too precarious and yeah and I feel I do feel a fatigue as I get older that the precarity is increasing rather than decreasing um yeah and I although I want to kind of do everything I can to change that, I also feel increasingly like I need a job um, that is paid. Um, yeah, because I'm 40, 41 now. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you know, it's just um, a really difficult time, I think, to have an art practice in the UK if you're not independently wealthy. And... Um, I feel deeply disappointed by that. Um, yeah, it's dispiriting, really. So I think, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm, as you know, trying to get some funding to do a PhD. We'll see if that happens. And if I don't get funding, I won't be able to do it, you know. So I feel, in a way, that pragmatism about needing to earn money is very helpful in that I don't feel embarrassed about having these conversations with anyone. <laughs> I'm just like, can't pay me, can't do it, bye. <laughs> um, whereas I know that for some 
people that I know who maybe have got some external money from somewhere um that they find those conversations trickier but I wish they didn't please if you do have some external uh resources that mean that theoretically you don't need to charge for your work please do charge for your work because it helps change the landscape for everyone whereas if you can if you can do it as an act of solidarity for people who need to earn money from art practice then please please charge like it frustrates me that um, the unpaid labour thing is kind of propped up by people who are wealthy. Um, and relatively, we're wealthy, you know, I'm not, you know, like, it's all relative, isn't it? Um, but I think I I never break 20k in terms of earnings, which is ridiculous. But statistically, in terms of how much artists earn in the UK, I'm in like the top 5% of earners or something. Because there may be like 0.5% of people who are doing million pound sales at auction. Well, A, none of that money is going to them anyway. Um, you know, even with the artist resale, right? That is so small. The percentage of money that's going to the artist is all going to, to, you know, blue chip galleries or auction houses. But, you know, then there's like, you know, the three people and their dog who, you know, have got like sweet of studio space and Anish Kapoor or whatever has got a hundred people working for him making public sculptures for Chicago. Um, you know, those people are just, they're in a different, they're in a way, I don't really think about them as artists because it's so, it's such a different experience. So yeah, I don't know, brands, they're brands. <laughs> and then the rest of us are artists. And uh, the reality is I don't, the last research, I think was that artists on average earned under £10,000 a year. But I think there's been, I think that's gone down since then. I would be surprised if it hadn't. So stupid. <laughs> stupid system. Unsustainable. Yeah. And if you think about the creative industries being one of the main drivers of GDP, and you think about the role that artists have within that, and you think about, you know, institutional budgets and then once you trickle down what the artist fee is, even within a major institution, you know, it is it's criminal really. It's 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 um yeah. We need to be a lot more militant about how wrong it is. Um, because talented people can't do it. Loads of interesting artists are not making artwork and we are poorer for it. <sighs> I want to ask like why it's important for you to carve out the this kind of time in your life and in your mm. art practice to devote to um creating an opportunity for for other people and and I guess an opportunity for other people maybe shifted in terms of collective action like an opportunity for collective action I can speak to that a bit. I mean, I think for me, it's the difference between I and we. And when I was trying to negotiate better pay for myself as an I, I found it really difficult. I felt awkward. There were a lot of assumptions that people had about me because I had a scholarship to private school, so I've got quite a posh voice. <laughs> you know, so then there's like certain... So then when you start having conversation about money, people are like, well... Or, 
you don't that's you know that's what we have you know anyway and I just wanted to like I wanted to I when I was when I I when I rethought this and with others we started talking about a we and then suddenly it's not about a, any judgment you're not making you're not allowing people to make judgment on you as an individual you're saying that this is um a position of it's an automatic position of power we is like you know many and I think harnessing the idea of many when you're trying to intervene in terms of like negotiating pay is absolutely essential because um yeah and I even now like if there's a if I see opportunity that isn't um I just, this is what a secret little bit of activism I do. I just email them and say, um, I've seen your opportunity advertise. It sounds fantastic. Love, love the idea. Do a little bit of fluffing. And then I'm like, but I noticed that it doesn't adhere to the recommended rate of pay that is published by Arts Council uh, or the trade union, you know, rate of pay, which is our statutory one. <laughs> um, and uh you know, and and you need to be aware that these are published rates of pay that artists should be earning. Um, and recently, you know, I had this sort of quite a lengthy email conversation with someone advertising a role within a hospital working with terminally ill children, an artist, right? And um, they wanted an artist to do a morning, a two-hour workshop in the morning at one site, and then a two-hour workshop in the afternoon at another site. And they wanted to play a one flat day rate. And I was like, "Where is the allocation of of money for um, prep time?" And they were like, "Well, that's four hours of delivery, so that you're left with three and a half hours for prep." I was like, "Right, so." Uh, so when you go to a workshop, you have to set it up beforehand and you have to like have conversations with key staff and you have to like make sure the room is like warm and welcoming and be there when people arrive. So that's normally about 45 minutes beforehand. And then at the end, people quite often want to kind of stay beyond the length of the session. You can't just sort of close the doors and chuck them out, particularly if they're ill. And you often need to maybe flag up causes for concern with staff or like have a debrief moment, pack everything down, make sure that it's put away, you know, make spaces tidy. And that's, so that's 45 minutes at the end. So that's an hour and a half aside every workshop. So then by your reckoning, you're leaving half an hour of prep per two workshops a week. I was like, that, that doesn't, that is impossible the amount of unpaid work you're asking someone to deliver and they're also not trained you know no artist has got training to deal with terminally ill children so you're also asking for a major amount of emotional labor to be done which none of that and then then they were saying oh well we give them um, psychological support you'd have free access to our counseling service but you wouldn't pay the person to attend that so you know, I just, so the whole thing, I just try and, I just try and come at people all the time with this stuff and be like, no. Um, and I don't apply for things that I don't think are paid for properly, but I also kind of call people out because I'm just like, this, these, these budgets are set by people who are, who are on a regular income and they don't understand 
what they're asking people to do, how difficult it is to run a two hour workshop full stop um, that's engaging and different each week. That's actually quite a big ask. Um, and then to do that in a context where you're dealing with people who are critically ill um, and not providing any kind of pastoral support for the artists you're working with. I mean, <laughs> ah! anyway, so I'm like, I will not be replying for this opportunity because of this, but I thought you should know. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Well, I'm just, I've just finished almost 99.9% .9 finished um, a kind of new moving image work. Um, and that used some new sort of things for me. So it was like with 3D scanning and animating. Um, and actually I had to work with some technicians to help me realize it because my skills aren't adequate enough. But thanks to this Arts Council funding, I was able to do that. Um, but so the project that I've come to an end, which is this, I had a some Arts Council funding for this residency at this gaming disorder clinic, which is an NHS clinic. And that was for me and an artist called Anna Bunting Branch, who's absolutely amazing, to do a kind of residency, experimental sort of online residency um, in the clinic, working with the uh, service users and the staff, um, and then also developing our own work and research. Um, so I've just finished the Arts Council sort of final report for that. Um, and now I'm in this weird kind of impasse moment where I have a couple of ongoing projects, um, but other things have just finished. So I just had some work showing in Budapest, that exhibition has just closed. And now I'm kind of in this weird place, which I'm sure some of us recognize, which is like, oh, uh, the next the next things look a little bit, the next few months look a bit empty. Uh, I'm not, not sure exactly what's, coming um but actually i am trying to sort of get some funding for a practice-based phd so i've been focusing on that and i also have started making some new work in the studio so i'm kind of thinking about starting the new year with a bit of a studio focus um yeah i'm starting a series called worry beads so using some uh hot glass um and yeah, some sculptures. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about those. We'll see. We'll see what they what they turn out like. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, in terms of like more concrete things, there's very little in my diary coming up, which just feels really uncomfortable. Um, there's a lots of like possible things that may or may not come off that I can't really talk about, and then it becomes like if they all come off that's going to be bad if one of them comes off that'll be okay if two of them come off that'd be great you know like this weird sort of how do you how do you plan a life when you don't know what's going to happen in it I don't know <laughs> that's not just an artist problem though <laughs> what about you Kelly you don't have <laughs> Yes, you are, of course. I think I'm trying to figure out a way to redirect my life towards focusing on like making work, reviving my exhibition career, because I don't really have, you know, things ahead of me, which freaks me out. Um, and obviously, like focusing on my PhD, whatever that means, um, <laughs> you know, just like trying to push forward this project. 
trying to, you know, understand its effect and, and work with that. And um, yeah, so I mean, I guess that's okay. So one question I wanted to ask was, um, in terms of like, I don't know, I mean, this is just like a very simple question, I'm probably going to edit this out. But like, what do you think the answer is, in terms of like, you know, I've heard this from people and you're talking about kind of how, you know, um, austerity measures within the past 10 years have, have gotten worse, like how, you know, especially as your life expands and you're no longer this one particular kind of artist, you're no longer able to or willing to kind of accept unreasonable or like impossible demands, right? Like, why do we stay? Why do we stay in this world? And then it's like, on top of staying, like, how do we get the energy to, like, work collectively? Uh, energy and also time, especially if we also have a studio practice that mostly revolves around us kind of needing to, like, push it forward alone, you know? Um, like, even if we work with other people at the end of the day, no one's going to go into the studio and, like, make our work for us. Um, so, like, yeah, like everyone seems burnt out. Everybody seems quite tired. Everybody's been moving around between different jobs. Like things have gotten um, better in some ways, worse in some ways. You know, as we're getting older, things get more complicated or I don't know, depending on, I guess, how much money you have. Like um, just kind of like what still motivates you to continue <laughs> to be an artist and um, continue to like, you know, be an activist? And how do you, yeah, how do you kind of move past that exhaustion or something like that? Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, if you know the answer to any of those questions, please tell me. I think, um, what do I think? I've genuinely thought within the last couple of years, I can't do this. And they, that is the first time that I've really thought I can't be an artist anymore. Um, because I, it wasn't gifted to me. So I fought for it. And I've fought for it in a lot of different ways. And it's been hard won. And the idea even of like considering not functioning as an artist is like, so alien to me so it kind of freaked me out that I got to the point where I was like I can't do this anymore um but also that kind of energized me as well because I was like I needed a kind of recall of like what I was focusing on and what I was trying to how I was trying to function and that's out of that reassessment has come this desire to do a practice-based PhD because I think the things that I find satisfying about art are having a real um, rigorous kind of research-based practice that things are built on and out of and that kind of depth of like engagement with something I, is just what interests me about my own work. You know, there's like a tactility and there's like kind of sensuality and then there's the kind of nitty-gritty of making things, but which also have to be effective in some way um but they need to have some sort of intellectual rigor underneath them as well as part of them and and in order to kind of be able to make things that interest me I think 
I need to focus on functioning in a more academic context because at the moment that's one of the spaces in the UK that feels it's still like not very nice and there's loads of shitty things happening in academia but it does feel a space where I could sustain my practice um, as well and that's not just I know there's loads of difficult things happening in academia but um, yeah so I think it's just that that kind of whole sort of set of questioning has sort of allowed me to kind of attempt to start to refocus again um, and also uh, think through why I want to persevere again and um, some of that is just like just stubbornness because I'm not I don't want to give in to an ideology that I fundamentally disagree with that doesn't value artistic labor um, because I can't think of anything more important. <laughs> I don't know. Like there isn't, there isn't very many spaces like art where you can talk about anything and everything and, and it actually set up a kind of external to yourself conversation with others. You know, that just like the actual thing that art is blows my mind and I love it and when that really happens it's just the most incredible thing ever and I just I can't think of a more worthwhile way to spend my time so yeah in terms of what can sustain me like doing small scale kind of organizing helps me on every level because um I don't want to just be someone and this, you know, this isn't, this is how I feel sometimes, but I don't want to just allow myself to be paralyzed by the kind of overwhelming odds that it sometimes feels like, you know, this kind of Herculean effort of pushing these boulders up this hill. And also sometimes when you get to the top of the hill, like you think the things will get easier, but they're not, it's just another hill, you know, like there's certain career moments I've had where it's like, oh, I've been commissioned by the VNA, fantastic oh, things are still difficult. Okay, great. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> there's certain, you just like, I think the thing is, is that the way the art world functions currently is you're always, you're only as good as what you've got next in the, you know, next happening. And that, I kind of don't buy that logic because I don't think that's actually healthy. I don't think that's a healthy way of living. So I'm just trying to do things on my own terms. Um, and trying to kind of have conversations like this with people like you, that helps me to keep going because there's a sort of commonality there of endeavor and an understanding there. And we're developing a kind of shared a sort of set of understandings about A, this is really difficult. B, it's really important. So, you know, these kind of conversations help me hugely because um, I think, you know, sharing it's just sharing isn't it sharing like the or oh, sounds so cliche but sharing the journey of like trying to continue to sustain a creative process is it you know I could have a much easier life and that maybe is actually maybe I don't maybe that's just a kind of made-up idea in my head because everywhere I turn at the moment people I know in different sectors are having a shit time so maybe it's just everyone's having a shit time and there isn't a greener there isn't a greener environment but I certainly could be working in a better paid job 
I might be having a shit time, but I'd certainly be in a better, have a better income. So, you know, I think, yeah, that, you know, that there is some, something there that it needs to change for me because of age, you know, mortality, like, um, I'm not probably going to be able to work forever. What happens if I have a period of ill health, you know, things like that. So I need to be a little bit pragmatic as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> Is that, I don't know that that answers your question. 100% answers my question. It got really hopeful there in the middle and then it just went down again. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you don't. You're not here to inspire anybody. Um, other than maybe we're here to to be with each other in this conversations that afterwards we're like, maybe things feel slightly less shitty, um, which I hope, I hope is possible. But also let me ask you the final question that I always ask everybody, um, which is, um, uh, do we talk about what you thought we would talk about or do you have any questions for me or do you have anything else that you'd just like to say on the record? Um, love you, Kelly. I really respect what you're doing and trying to do um, with this project as well. Um, and I think it's sort of like drilling down into actually what's happening in individual artists' lives does show certain things quite starkly, really. Um, yeah, I suppose I just, I feel like the last sort of final thought or really is, is just that as an artist, it's easy to undervalue what it is that you do. And I just feel like actually taking on the fact that we need to affirm to ourselves and to others that what we do is important because I think it's really easy to come under this kind of like general kind of like malaise or like meta sort of bigger picture political environment that actually kind of actively is trying to dissuade us from doing these things and it, it sort of like infiltrates it becomes like a kind of fog you can it feels like a kind of oppression or like it's just like a weight and actually what we're doing is is really important and creativity is important and imagination is important and rethinking systems and structures is important and art does that so if you're I don't know without being too like emotive but if you are thinking about giving up, I understand. And I've been there and so many of us are there. And I think, you know, let's try and do what we can to support each other so that, you know, we can minimize that because yeah, art's important and artists are too. <laughs> That's all I want to say. That was great. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, thanks for having me, Kelly. You can find more information about Catriona Beals and her work at catrionabeals.com. Links to what we spoke about today, as well as other interviews with people in the arts, are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. If you'd like to help make the next season of the podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden. The episode artwork was created by Julia Ratti, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and that's it for season two. 
of this thing we call art. 